0: The fall of the Roman Empire has often captured the imagination of historians and the public alike. Brian Ward Perkins, a leading historian of late antiquity at Trinity College, Oxford, discusses the transitional period between the fall of Rome and the Middle Ages.
1: Why am I interested in history? I was born in Rome, and if you live early youth in Rome, history is all around you, and there's no other town in the world with such a sort of overlay of history and where to even begin to understand where modern Rome is you have to look backwards. My father was a classical archaeologist so I've been used to looking at things and trying to understand things and how they fit into the pattern of the past from early youth. So I think in a sense from the very beginning I've been interested in history. And what's history
0: like at Oxford?
1: Well the most distinctive characteristic of it is that it's huge faculty and enormously diverse. It's certainly the biggest in the country, probably the biggest in the world, and it covers everything. And from my own point of view, it's perfect because it meshes in with ancient history and is very interested in the medieval past and also geographically immensely diverse, so that you can study the rise of Islam just as much as you can study 18th century Britain. It's the diversity and the range and the choice that is so exceptional.
0: And why did you decide to train as both a historian and an archaeologist?
1: Well, that's very simple, I think. Archaeology is in my blood, comes from my father, comes from living in Rome, and I suspect if you were to dig really deep, I'd probably wanted to be doing something similar to him but just a little bit different so I trained as a historian but I've worked as an archaeologist in the past I've never actually studied archaeology the archaeology I know I've picked up from running excavations from looking at things talking to archaeologists listening to their lectures I've never actually studied it as a discipline I mean to be honest in the historic period I don't think you need to and what is your specific period of history My great interest is the end of the Roman world, the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th centuries. Above all in the West, which I know most about, because the place I know most about is Italy, and I also have to teach quite a lot about Britain, so my specialisation is focused in the West, but I'm also fascinated by the East Mediterranean and, for instance, by the rise of Islam in the 7th century. So my
0: great area of expertise is, it could, could be defined as, you know, the end of the ancient world. And what were the most significant events of the end of the ancient world? Well, in the West it's extremely straightforward, the disintegration of the Western Roman
1: Empire, which happens in the 5th century. In 400 AD there is one huge state which rules the whole Mediterranean world and the northern provinces, including Britain, under two different emperors, one based in the East and one based in the West. By 500 AD in the west that has totally disappeared and what you have instead are a number of separate kingdoms ruled by barbarian kings, Visigoths, Franks, Anglo-Saxons etc. In the east it's obviously a lot more complicated because the East Roman Empire goes on until 1453 uh, when when Constantinople is finally captured by the Ottoman Turks and they continue to call themselves Romans right up to 1453. But in the East, uh, the provinces of the Levant, in other words, sort of Syria, Palestine, uh, and also Egypt and North Africa, all lost to the Muslim Arabs in the 7th century, and things really changed pretty dramatically around then.
0: Could we briefly look at the narrative of the fall
1: of the Roman Empire? Certainly. It's contentious because... At one level, it's remarkably peaceful. People move from being Roman to being under Germanic kings. But that is contentious because recently some scholars have argued that it did actually just sort of slip almost imperceptibly from one Roman control into Germanic control. Personally, I think it's a little bit less pleasant than that. And I've written a book, in fact, arguing that it was a really rather nasty experience. Although it is very interesting because the new settlers within the empire wanted to be Roman. So, in fact, they Romanize very rapidly. Most of them start speaking Latin. The Anglo-Saxons are a notable exception to that. Uh, So that, for instance, the French, and French just comes from the word Frank. I mean, French just means Frank. Actually, of course, speak French, which is, in fact, a Romance language. So it is true that it's a fascinating change, because it's a dramatic change, total upset politically, but, in fact, in cultural terms, quite a lot continues. And one thing in particular, which is I hadn't mentioned before, which is very marked, is, of course, Christianity, which comes into the Roman Empire in 300 that has a history right through the end of the Roman Empire, fall of the Roman Empire, into the Germanic kingdoms, and goes sort of right the way through. And arguably, of course, Christianity sort of sits at the root of our culture and, of course, of our identity as Europeans. I mean, that's what the origins of Europe are, really, of Christendom.
0: And what were the causes of the fall of the Roman Empire? That's disputed.
1: Some people believe that the Roman Empire was rotten and therefore it kind of imploded that's rather out of fashion as a view some people believe that they just made some very stupid mistakes and basically invited in a lot of people from outside and invited rather too many of them in some people believe that actually having these new people in in order to do their fighting for them was a good thing and therefore it was a big change, but it was actually a deliberate change. And some people, and I'm amongst them, think that it's a combination of bad luck and the pressure of from outside, from the barbarian peoples.
0: You also do urban history.
1: Yes. In origin, I used to work on towns. More recently, I've actually got interested in the whole economy, deliberately, because it's very well illustrated by archaeology, so it's a way of combining archaeology with history. Also because economic history has actually gone out of fashion somewhat, and I think it's high time it had a revival, because if one just thinks about one's ordinary life, it is entirely based on the ability to do things, which is what you know the economy sustains. I mean, the fact that I'm making this recording at the moment requires somebody being paid by the computing service to come over here and record me and then somebody in the computing service uploading it onto an amazingly complicated series of machines that been put together by a million people in different parts of the world. So actually, you know, the economy is something you just can't ignore. So my interest is primarily in that. But what I've also argued is overlaps into everything. Church building, the size of the churches depends on how much money you have even things like literacy and things that are cultural. I mean, it does depend on how complex an economy you have. So that is my major interest. But I'm not a conventional economic historian because I'm actually interested in how the economy then feeds out into all sorts of areas of society.
0: Does that mean it's possible to develop a sense of what the life of the everyday citizen was like?
1: That's comparatively straightforward in the Roman period, although when one says everyday it's always much easier for people higher up the social scale because the literary evidence is much better for them and also because they had so many more things, the archaeological evidence is also better for them. It tends to be rather more difficult for a peasant or for a slave and sometimes one can get a bit you know, rosy-tinted about the Roman period but one does have to remember, for instance, that it's based on a huge quantity of slaves... They were the people who did the dishwashing and were the washing machines and the hoovers of the age. But on the other hand, for the Roman period, the evidence is quite good. It actually gets much more difficult afterwards because the literary evidence falls off and also actually the archaeological evidence falls off because people in the 6th, 7th centuries just had far less things and they're much more difficult to find.
0: With the fall of the Roman Empire and the transition into the Middle Ages, can you see a distinction between the lives before and after?
1: Yes, I think so. This is slightly controversial. Some people argue that the fall of the Roman Empire means the end of a great exploitative empire and that people are therefore freer and better off afterwards. And certainly things like empire-wide taxation disappear. But actually, I think, and this is mainly based on the archaeological evidence, the thing that's striking about the Roman Empire is how it actually enriched people at a medium and lower level. I think at the very bottom of society there were people who were miserably poor, but sadly that's actually been true throughout history, right the way up into the 18th, 19th century and indeed into today, particularly if you think that we are based actually on a global economy, which depends on a whole lot of people who are miserably poor in other countries. So that's, in a way, a sort of standard feature. But what's characteristic about the Roman Empire is that people at a middling and lower level, ordinary peasants, actually had access to things like roof tiles and good quality pottery and good tools. That changes. With the end of the Roman Empire, all that middle and lower, huge stratum of the economy disappears and in fact people live in little wooden huts with thatched roofs which probably leaked although it's rather difficult to prove and they had very very basic tools and basic pots and probably
0: had less access to a range of foodstuffs as well. So the paucity of archaeological and literary evidence is because of this change?
1: Yes absolutely. I mean one of the problems looking back into history is Is it lack of evidence or is it genuine lack? And conventionally people look at the very early Middle Ages where there is a lack of evidence and they say, there's a lack of evidence. But you're absolutely right. The truth is that, in fact, complex societies generate their own
0: evidence. Why did the enrichment end on such, what is historically, a very small period of time?
1: Well, I suppose it isn't that small, actually. It's very fast in some places, like Britain... It's much, much slower in places like Italy and North Africa and it sort of winds down over two centuries. And in the East Mediterranean, it doesn't happen until the 7th century and, in fact, in the Arab provinces, it probably doesn't happen until the 8th and 9th centuries. I think one has to conclude that it's got a lot to do with the disintegration of the Roman Empire and the advent of new peoples. Not because the new peoples deliberately destroyed things but because... Unwittingly, they destroyed the structures that maintained the Roman economy and, in some cases, introduced periods of very, very substantial disruption, as in Britain, for instance, in the fifth century. So, I would attribute the change to the coming of the barbarians, but as I've said in my book, I don't think it was murder of the Roman way of life, it was manslaughter, it was sort of unintended. But uh, I think that. Just looking at it chronologically, the two things do mesh together quite closely.
0: So the lifestyles of the barbarians can't have been so far below that of the Roman people, surely? No, it's not that far below.
1: And in fact, the barbarians, when they come in and they find flourishing ways of Roman life, they very, very rapidly adapt to them. And, for instance, people like the Ostrogoths in Italy uh, happily live in marble palaces it's not that they're culturally ill-attuned to using the Roman ways, but the destruction of the Roman state, of its whole taxation system, which did redistribute wealth within the empire, the disruptions caused by military invasion radically interrupt sort of economic life and basically economic life unravels. I mean, It's a difficult process to understand because we're used to things growing all the time and we're used to economies becoming more and more and more complex so that every single year new bits are sort of added on. But I think what happens at the end of the Roman world is an economy starts to unravel and in fact it's a very salutary thing to study because it makes one realise that this can happen. Now our assumption that things are going to go on getting more and more complicated, more and more sophisticated and, in a sense, better. We're going to have you know, better tools. We're going to have to
0: move ourselves less. It's going to be easier and easier. Might be wrong. How do you chart these incremental changes when there's not very much evidence for?
1: Well, the best evidence certainly comes from archaeology because we don't have, for the immediately post-Roman period, the great runs of documentation that, for instance, you might have for late medieval times or for early modern times and we don't have any kind of data on say population or longevity of life and archaeology can provide some of that data. It will go on providing better and better data. I mean, for example, as more and more skeletons are studied we will get better ideas about size of population, the health of population and the longevity of population. At the moment that's all quite difficult Partly because people can't quite agree how you actually age bones. But that sort of thing will improve. And the archaeological data, of course, will just go on getting more and more all the time. What I've worked with mainly is pottery. Pottery, fortunately, has two huge advantages. One, everybody uses pots. And secondly, pottery survives extraordinarily well in the soil. It breaks very easily. But once it's broken, it's almost indestructible. So a vast mass of pottery has been excavated by archaeologists all over the Roman and post-Roman worlds. And that shows an extraordinary change. I mean, in the Roman period, even at a low level, a peasant might have access to a whole range of pots from a widely different set of kilns, I mean, scattered geographically quite far, and be of very good quality. Whereas in the post-Roman period, Almost all pottery is very local, rather badly made, porous, friable, and there's is just a huge contrast. Most marked in places like Britain, but also very notable in places like Italy. So I've argued, and I think I'm right, that if you can see the sort of change in pottery, it probably also happened in all sorts of other industries where things don't survive like well, like clothing industry, footwear metal tools, uh, domestic building, virtually
0: everything. Presumably that's not because of a lack of skill, or not because skills weren't passed down, but is it because people were preoccupied with living more basically?
1: What is a good question. It's, uh, to be honest, it's a bit of a mystery. I mean, I can chart the fact that it happens, but then one has to hypothesise why. I mean, I can show you that a pot in Britain in 500 AD is very different to a pot in Britain in 400 AD. But the pot, of course, isn't telling me why. One has to hypothesize. Actually, quite a lot of skills do disappear, although that then raises the question why they disappear. They certainly do disappear. For example, in Britain in 500 AD, nobody was making wheel-turned pottery. The use of the wheel which is a very basic technology, completely disappears from the whole British Isles during the 5th century. Equally, for example, the burning of lime to make mortar disappears. There is no mortared building, no new mortared building in Britain in 500 AD. It's reintroduced at the very end of the 6th century, particularly from the continent with the return of Christianity and the Christian missions. So... Technologies do go, I mean, another technology, if you think of it as a technology, is writing. I mean, writing disappears in Anglo-Saxon Britain in the 5th century. Nobody writes. Again, that comes in again with Christianity in the 6th century. So technologies can disappear. But as I say, that really just raises the question, why do they disappear? I find it very puzzling. I mean, particularly something as basic as the use of the wheel for making pottery. It has to be, really, that... The market has collapsed. The market doesn't exist for people to be specialised enough to invest in the basic things like a potter's wheel which would enable them to make more pots because in order to do that they'd have to be able to sell more pots. And apparently the market just implodes so that everybody is really effectively making their own. If you go that basic then you know technologies disappear because the technologies do depend on a market in order for people to put the investment into buying the tools to make the things in a specialised way and also the investment to, as it were, train themselves to make them that much better. It is puzzling and I wouldn't like to say I'm very happy with this explanation, but that's what it looks like.
0: And could one theorise that that's because of the collapse of the tax system and the general economy? It has to be part of an
1: overall collapse of the general economy, yes, the tax system would be part of it because I mean what the tax system did is a it forced people to raise money in the form of coin, and in order to have money in the form of coin, you've got to sell things, so arguably it jolts people into a degree of economic complexity, whereas a simple sort of barter system, you don't you don't actually need to do that, so you might kind of lose it. And secondly, the tax system also distributed uh, wealth, so that, for example, up in the north of Britain, soldiers on Hadrian's War had coins, and they then spent their coins and that, of course, will then generate a local economy that is slightly more specialised, slightly more market-driven than a simple, you know, entirely kind of self-sufficient or very, very local barter economy. But, again, I wouldn't to say I'm totally happy with these explanations, but what we see is we see the impact of change, and then we have to hypothesise back to the sorts of structural changes that, m- that
0: could perhaps begin to explain those changes. So do we see from the archaeology a decline in the use of coinage then? Coinage has a remarkable decline at the
1: end of the Roman Empire and it's a remarkable index of, sort of economic simplification. The main thing that goes is small denominational coinage. In the Roman world there is a huge huge amount of copper coinage in circulation even on rural sites in quite remote parts of the world like Britain. Copper coins are everywhere and if copper coins are everywhere people must be using them, they must be tied into a market economy. In the post-German world, places like Britain coins effectively disappear. In places like Italy, they become very, very, very rare, and the majority of coins that are produced in the post-Roman world are actually in silver and gold, which are therefore only for sort of major transactions and also, in many cases, are being produced for prestige reasons rather
0: than actually straightforward economic reasons. So there is an extraordinary change, yes. Presumably these small kingdoms that emerged at the end of the Roman period had their own economy. Yes,
1: they have their own economy, but it's quite basic. At the very top of society, you could have access to quite spectacular luxuries. The best example of this is the Sutton Hoo ship burial, uh, which is the burial of a king uh, in East Anglia in around 625 AD. He's assumed to be a king of the East Angles, probably rightly. He had weaponry possibly from Scandinavia. He had silver, uh, great silver dishes from the East Mediterranean, from the Byzantine world. He had a copper dish from the same part of the world. He also had a bronze bowl, which was probably made in West Britain, in a sort of Wales area. He had gold coins from the Frankish kingdom, from what's now France. And he had spectacularly beautiful... East Anglian-made jewellery, which incorporated garnets, uh, which had certainly been imported from the continent. So at that sort of level, you might have wonderfully exotic goods. But what's striking is that below that level, uh, people are apparently living in very, 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 very simple houses uh, with extremely basic uh, manufactured goods like pots.
0: Were there any kingdoms or or fiefdoms where the Roman way of life persisted far more than it did in others? Initially, yes. Strikingly, I mean, people like the Goths
1: in Italy who have a kingdom in Italy in the early 6th century are very, very, very Roman, and they want to be very Roman. I mean, it's reasonable to say they're almost more Roman than the Romans. I mean, they encourage circus games, amphitheatre games... The writing of extremely flowery and difficult to read latin but i mean interestingly that's true initially but in fact what happens is that sort of very gradually seemingly you know underneath that change is going on so that for example by the end of the sixth century when in fact italy had been ravaged by a terrible war between the goths and the east romans the byzantines i mean in fact that kind of level of cultural achievement just disappears
0: So is it accurate to say that once the Roman Empire fell, we moved into the Dark Ages? I think so, although it's not
1: necessarily a very fashionable view. The term Dark Ages has gone out of fashion, and in many ways rightly, because the problem about it is it's also sort of morally loaded, the idea that actually people were nastier and more brutal. And I think that's just straightforwardly wrong. Not because I think they were terribly nice, but just because people have always been extremely unpleasant. And one only has to look at 20th century history to realise that people with more complex technologies can be even more unpleasant to each other than people with rather basic technologies. So in that sense, I think Dark Ages you know, needs to go. I don't actually use it myself. But in terms of A, availability of evidence, which is one of the reasons they're dark, Yes, definitely. And the evidence just disappears, virtually disappears. And in places like Britain, you do literally return to prehistory. There is no history. There are no dates in the part of Britain taken over by the Anglo-Saxons between 410 and the return of Christianity with the missionaries in 597. So for 200 years, we really don't know from any written records what's going on. So in that sense, it's very, very dark. And in cultural and economic terms, there is a remarkable simplification. I mean, simplification obviously is a neutral term, but if you wanted to call it a regression, I don't think that's being too dreadfully judgmental. So, yes, I think, I mean, Dark Ages do happen, although I think the term is too loaded. But
0: as you said before, this was only in Europe, not in Byzantium. In Byzantium,
1: certainly doesn't happen in the 5th and 6th centuries. The 5th and 6th centuries, actually, in Byzantium, are a period of great wealth. Churches are built all over the place. This is when Christianity is really taking it off and the towns are being transformed by the building of great churches. The most obvious example is Hagia Sophia in uh, then Constantinople, now modern Istanbul which is a monstrously big building built by Justinian in the early 6th century so whereas say in the early 6th century in britain nobody's building anything except a few wooden halls so byzantium is dramatically different to the histories at least of part of the west but byzantium changes in the 7th century with the loss of the southeastern provinces and of north africa to the Arabs. In fact, towns of Byzantium seem to shrink dramatically, and certainly any new building on a substantial scale seems to virtually disappear. It's nothing like the same regression that you get in somewhere like Britain in the 5th century, but nonetheless there is a dramatic shrinkage of the sort of economic potential and of the sort of cultural potential, even in Byzantium. But it's much later, it's in the 7th century, and it's thought to be due to particularly the rise of the Arabs, because the Arabs not only take away some of the most prosperous provinces, they also raid into Asia Minor, modern Turkey, and on at least two occasions, they nearly capture Constantinople itself.
0: Did the Eastern Roman Empire recognise and observe what was going on in what used to be the Western Roman Empire? Very much so, partly probably with relief
1: that they didn't have to do anything about it necessarily. But, in fact, through the 5th century, there are repeated attempts to recapture some of the lost Western provinces. The province that they most want to recapture is the province of Africa, which is now central North Africa, sort of Tunisia, because it was very, very wealthy, a major grain-producing province centred on Carthage. And then in the 6th century, under Justinian, they do recapture many of the Western provinces. They take Italy, they take Africa, and they even take parts of southern Spain. So it's not the case. They just sort of wash their hands of the West. They make repeated attempts to recapture bits of it off the barbarian kingdoms that have succeeded.
0: Is there documentation from the Eastern Empire that sheds light on the daily lives of the people they they recapture?
1: No. I mean, daily life, unfortunately... If one wants to study daily life, unless you look at it archaeologically one slightly you know it's very limited what we have i mean the sort of evidence we have tends to be either laws or narrative historians who are interested in major political events or major military events it would be very nice to have you know i don't know a contemporary diary but that doesn't exist from the roman period either i mean for bits of the roman period sometimes you can kind of get down to that level. And you can certainly get down to that level sometimes sort of archaeologically in somewhere like Pompeii, where the preservation is fantastic uh, and the place is covered in you know, people's graffiti. So you really do get a sort of, you can sort of smell the place and sort of sense what life's like. But sadly, I mean, daily life, really actually to, to get insights into daily life at that sort of level You don't really get them until the 17th, 18th century. I mean, before that, the documentation we have is always a little bit too formal,
0: too sort of polished,
1: or too institutional.
0: You mentioned law a moment ago. Obviously, the Roman legal system was very well established. Did the law simply disappear at the same time as the economy?
1: Yes and no. Yes, because, fascinatingly, the Germanic peoples who settled... In the West do things very differently. Their form of law was the feud whereby a family group defends its own honour and defends offences against it, so that if I kill your cousin, your family will actually come and seek revenge from me or will at least seek a money compensation from me. So, actually, in the Germanic way of doing things the state played very, very little part in peacekeeping. What kept the peace was the threat of the other group, the group you offended, taking their revenge on you, which, funnily enough, seems to work most of the time. So at that level, yes, but, except in very backward places like Britain, Roman law does also persist, particularly in the Church, and in fact increasingly the Germanic people Sort of start to adopt bits of Roman law into their own systems, so in fact, I mean by the time you get to the you know ninth century,
0: what you've got is a sort of mixed system working several times now you've mentioned the Christian missionaries returning to Britain. Where were they coming from, and why did they sustain a different lifestyle?
1: Most of the former Roman Empire remain solidly Christian, and most of the barbarian peoples who invade rapidly convert to Christianity. So in most of the empire, Spain, modern France, Italy, North Africa, until the Arabs come, there is no break in the religious history. And basically the people come in, they rapidly convert, and they start worshipping the local saints. And it's all very straightforward although there's a complication because some of them believed in the wrong type of Christianity, but that's a complexity which we don't necessarily have to go into. They were regarded as heretics by the supposed orthodox. Needless to say, nobody ever regards themselves as a heretic. Everybody thinks of themselves as the orthodox and the other people as the heretics. But in Britain, when the Anglo-Saxons arrive, there are lots of Christians in Britain. they The Romano Britons had converted to Christianity, or most of them had, but the Anglo Saxons in fact eliminate Christianity in their part of the kingdom. Probably not deliberately, but it goes. Not entirely, because in fact it's clear that there were Britons under Anglo Saxon rule continuing to practice their religion. The best piece of evidence of this is the cult of St Alban. St Alban was worshipped at St Albans. Roman Verulanium, just north of London, and there's a continuous cult through from Roman times. He's a late Roman saint through Anglo-Saxon times into Anglo-Saxon Christian times. So there were Christians under Anglo-Saxon rule, but the Anglo-Saxons themselves were pagans, worshipping the Germanic gods, the Germanic gods whom, of course, we still name every day of the week after, so that uh, today is Wednesday, which is Woden's Day, which is an extraordinary fact, but in fact it's true of all European languages except, I think, Portuguese. The days of the week are named after pagan gods, and those names have persisted. In the south of Europe, it's the Roman gods, so that in Italian, today is Mercury, Mercury Day, whereas we're celebrating Woden's Day. But in most of the Roman world, Christianity persisted, And Christianity carried with it cultural kudos. It was a religion of a book, it's a religion with writing, it's a religion with a complex liturgy. It's also universal, so that if you were celebrating the Mass in, say, Paris you knew you were doing the same thing that was going on in Rome, in Carthage, in Alexandria, in Constantinople, possibly in a different language, but essentially it's a sort of great massive universal thing. The Anglo-Saxons, who were originally a pagan, at the end of the 6th century, it seems, sort of wake up to the fact that they're slightly outside this rather more sophisticated club, and they join it. It's actually an interesting moment in Anglo Saxon history, therefore, one could say in English history, because arguably it's the sort of first time the English joined Europe, and possibly for rather similar reasons, because being outside it felt a little bit cold and lonely. And this is an important change because one of the things that happens at the end of the Roman Empire is obviously the great barrier between people who are Roman and people who are outside the empire disappears and in fact the new sort of cultural unit is being Christian and in fact Christianity can then spread outside and beyond so that in fact the Irish were never part of the Roman Empire become Christian in the fifth century and in a sense sort of join a new club which is a Christian club and the Anglo-Saxons do in the sixth, seventh century, the Picts in Scotland did in the sixth century eventually the Scandinavians do in the 9th, 10th century and you get a new cultural unit which is Christendom which actually of course is the root of Europe. So it's a
0: vital change uh, and a very interesting one that's going on in this period. How did life get more complex and evolve over the following centuries? Very, very slowly (laughs) for a start. If one looks at the history of
1: Britain and you look at Late 8th century Britain, there are the beginnings of towns, above all coastal settlements, places like Saxon, Southampton, Hamwich, places like London, are beginning to emerge as trading centres. There are the first complex native industries, for instance producing pottery, above all in East Anglia. There is the re-emergence, very, very slow re-emergence of coinage, There had been no native coins in the 5th, 6th century. 7th century and in the 8th century, more and more native coins are produced. In silver, but sometimes very, very small. So they're probably being used even for quite small-scale exchange. And if you looked at Britain in around 800 economically, it's probably roughly similar to Britain in about the year 1, it's sort of just like pre-Roman Britain, late Iron Age Britain. And then it gradually builds up more and more complex market towns, more and more industries, more use of coinage, advent of taxation and coinage, writing becomes more and more used. I mean, and then it's a sort of more or less a continuous development up to the present day. But slowly, 200 years of gradual recovery.
0: And who kept the Roman literature and institutions alive so that they could eventually re-emerge?
1: Well traditionally the thought is the church does it and that's largely true. Most of the people who are literate and certainly most of the people who are literate at a high level are churchmen in the 6th, 7th century and that's where such latin literature as is being copied is being copied it's not entirely true there are literate lay people as well but they are pretty rare i mean the institution that kind of maintained high learning was definitely the church
0: what about the emergence of the university ah
1: well in the case of oxford it's very simple oxford was founded by king alfred Well, that's what they said in the 16th century. But that's actually based on a myth put around. There's a life of Alfred by Asser, which survived in one single manuscript, which is now destroyed. And when it was published uh, in the 16th century, a chapter was added about how he founded the University of Oxford, which, of course, meant that Oxford is by far the oldest university in, at least in the Christian world far older than Cambridge, for instance. But that's, of course, not true, sadly. Universities come in, in, well, they come in first in Italy. Bologna, I think, is the oldest in in Christendom. And then they emerge in England in the 13th century. And they're definitely coming about as a result of the sort of increasing complexity, the increasing spread of literacy. And essentially, their training... Career clerics. Whereas, say, in the early Middle Ages, you'd become a high ranking cleric. Yes, there was a sort of career move, but it would probably very much depend on the monastery you were associated with or the family you came from. By the time you get to the time of the universities, you can sort of rise up more easily through meritocracy and through your brains. And you might be moving between universities, you might be going from Paris to Bologna to Oxford, across to Cambridge, up to Scotland, and actually there's a complexity within the academic world, which is part of the general complexity of society, which is sort of economic, administrative, financial, literary, I mean all these things tie in together, and universities are part of that much more sophisticated, complex world. Dr. Ward Perkins, thank you. That's a great pleasure.